Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for. 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit. 20% off gifts to celebrate the season. And 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC. In stores and online now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for getting us through already well more than six and a half seasons of the program. And this is a first. We dedicate the entire program to the famous, the actors who have served in the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines, as well as, as you'll hear later on coming up, those who have contributed so much, whether it's domestically or overseas. Kind of a Hollywood feel here on this week's edition of the program. We couldn't do it without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law. That's B-O-E-S-E-N, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day, 303 999 9999. Coming up on the program. I've just returned from the 8th Air Force, commanded by General Aker. Does that voice sound familiar? Well, it should. And frankly, my dears, you should give a damn. That was Clark Gable. We'll hear about his military service in World War II. Later on in the program, we'll kind of switch around. How about this guy? I was a Marine with 1 1 Weapons Company, 81's platoon out in Camp Pendleton, California. Wait a minute. That voice sounds familiar. Wasn't he Han Solo's son? We'll talk about Adam Driver as we wrap up the program. There is, of course, the incredible Jimmy Stewart. Hollywood film star James Stewart is now a captain in the Air Force. Interviewed in Britain, he had this to say about his... In fact, we'll have more on Jimmy Stewart coming up, or should I say James, uh, straight ahead in this first opening segment. And then, of course, well, much ballyhooed as he was a young man. Well, Elvis, now you're really home. How does it feel? Pretty hard to describe, I'll tell you. Elvis Presley, of course, such a huge deal when he entered the United States Army. Some of you probably remember that like it was yesterday. Thank you so much. We've got a terrific program ahead and much more. We begin, though, with Jimmy Stewart. What an amazing American. What an incredible actor. Seemingly a heart of gold and most patriotic, most certainly. Hollywood film star James Stewart is now a captain in the Air Force. Interviewed in Britain, he had this to say about his wartime job. I'm afraid I'm a little out of practice at this appearing before the camera. About three years ago, the first day I got into the Army, I was asked to make a statement for the newsreels. And as I remembered, I said, I'm very proud to be here, and I'm going to do my best to be useful as a soldier in the United States Army. An interesting thing I remember was on the mission, and uh, Jimmy Stewart, the movie actor was the lead pilot in the whole eighth Air Force. There goes Jimmy Stewart on his way to enlist. 
he was a, a wing commander in the second division for B-24. Can you define for us, uh, Jimmy, the, the character that you've come to be associated with? Have you ever thought I about it, analyzed I, it yourself? I really haven't analyzed it very much. And uh, this particular day, he was the lead pilot in the 8th Air Force. The town we were going to was Chemnitz. I imagine that uh, sort of uh, an overall uh, look at it would be, I'm, I'm the plotter. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. First, Luke was under attack and they lost nine airplanes. You could see nine airplanes burst uh, into flame and go down. Uh, I'm pretty good example of true human frailty. And they could hear uh, say, okay fellas, in a very calm voice, all right fellas, let's just move it in, keep it close, keep it tight. The tighter we are, the better we are to be able to defend ourselves, just nice and easy. I, I don't really have all the answers. I have very few of the answers, but for some reason, somehow, I make it. And I thought it was in the movie. He was very calm, and uh, the instructions he gave were great and uh, gave everybody a little bit of confidence. I had it remember well. When I'm at the head of the wagon train, for some reason, we get across the road. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. As we continue focusing on him on this special edition of the program, looking at actors from Hollywood who have served our country, hear what you're about to hear. Jimmy Stewart in a public service announcement for recruitment. Now, it isn't as if it was a chore for me to talk to you because I want to speak on my favorite subject, the Army Air Forces. I can't speak from long experience. I've only been in the service a year, but I've learned a lot about what the Air Forces have to offer. That's what I want to talk to you about. And this war we're fighting today and tomorrow and the next day until we win is a war of the air. And the whole world knows that. Our factories know that. So interceptors, pursuit ships, light bombers, medium bombers, and flying fortresses are rolling out of those factories. 65,000 fighting planes this year. 100,000 fighting planes next year. And to keep them flying, Two million men. Now, now that's where you come in. The Army Air Forces need 15,000 captains, 40,000 lieutenants, 35,000 flying sergeants. Well, how about it? Well, let's talk it over. Now, make no mistake about this thing, fellas. We're all going to be in this war soon, sooner than a lot of you realize. And now it begins. Now, here's a sort of a composite picture of what happens to you in the first few weeks of your aviation cadet training. Now, you find your room. Meet your roommate. Get a haircut, army style. And try on a new pair of shoes and a new uniform that really fits. In ground school, officers with years of experience patiently explain what makes them fly. And then one day, when class is over, you get all rigged out in what the well-dressed birdman will wear you feel like quite a guy as you meet your flying instructor. But always in your memory will be the thrill of that first beautiful morning 
when you took off for the first time. Here you are, cruising along in a BT, that basic trainer to you, and twisting your tail into a few acrobatics and loops and barrel rolls and snap rolls. That's some fun, huh? And a few more weeks roll by. You find yourself in still another plane. An advanced trainer this time. Yes, indeed, you're really getting up in the world at the rate of nearly 200 miles an hour. But you think this is something. Well, now, just wait. Fellas, shake hands with Mr. B-17 and a few of his big brothers. Now watch out now, he's tough. Those four motors roaring through the sky like a thunderstorm, they can't fool with them. American workmen, the finest master mechanics in the world, put those motors together. Made them live, made them breathe, made them roar. There are a whole army of workmen, designers, engineers, and just plain guys who wanted to do something for their country. They put that B-17 together. A few thousand of these babies will win this war for us. And a few thousand guys like you in there flying. And remember, we said something about a team. Well, nine men are inside that plane, each with an important job to do. So let's go and take a look around. Let's meet the team. Yes, sir, nine fellas like yourself working together as closely coordinated as a precision watch. Now get this straight. The pilot is not the most important fellow inside this plane. All nine members of the crew are equally important. For example, the pilot and the co-pilot can take the plane off the ground and set it back down again, but where would they be without the navigator? And now let's go up into the nose of Mr. B-17 and meet somebody who has an important job in that department. This is the bombardier, the boy who doesn't miss. Now back in the main body of the plane, we've got some more important positions. This fellow is the number one engineer. He keeps the motors turning and the thousands of working parts all through the bomber inspected and in repair. And then comes the radio operator who keeps the bomber in constant communication with its home base. And the photographer who keeps a photographic record of what takes place on the earth below while the bomber's on its mission. He's sort of an official scorekeeper checking up for future reference. Now the remaining members of the flight crew are number two engineer and number two radio man. So you see, being in the Air Forces isn't all piloting, or all navigating, or all bombardering. It's teamwork. And each member of the team is just as important as the next one. So listen to the roar of those motors, young men of America, and heed their call. Soon the skies will be filled with the greatest air armada the world has ever seen. Our own Army Air Forces. The best planes ever built. 65,000 planes this year, 100,000 more next year. That's why we'll lick the axis, and that's how we'll lick the axis. Now, this is your place. This is where you'll serve America best. Young men of America, your future's in the sky. Your wings are waiting. You're part of a team. Now, remember that. Jimmy Stewart from his recruitment video back in World War II. We're just getting started. Coming up in our next segment, Clark Gable. Stay with us on the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. As we continue our special episode this week on Hollywood stars and incredible people who were, in, back in the day, just everything to everyone in the public eye, well, they also, many of them, had such an impact on service for our country. Last segment, Jimmy Stewart, 
this segment, Clark Gable. Still to come, Adam Driver, Elvis, and Marlena Dietrich straight ahead. Let's get to Clark Gable and, well, this post-service, in fact, just still appearing in uniform. I've just returned from the 8th Air Force, commanded by General Aker, flying with men who were aviation cadets only a few months ago. All I can say is, I can never hope to be in better company. Those boys can take it. And don't think they are dishing it out, too. Any kid who can handle himself, and he doesn't have to be an all-American to get into good shape, and who has a few brains, ought to be smart enough to find out how to become an aviation cadet. Any recruiting officer can tell him. Or he can write to General Arnold so that one of the staff officers can mail the information. We're getting more and more planes. We need more and more gunners, pilots, navigators, and bombardiers. More aviation cadets. We also need 17-year-old enlisted reservists to get ready for jobs at the Air Force. Clark Gable. Now, what you're about to hear is actually a Clark Gable film. Keep in mind that many in Hollywood... No, they did not storm the beaches at Normandy. Many who did would maybe later become actors, but those that were especially in World War II, they were given, I guess, special assignments. Not necessarily every one of them saw combat. Many of them did. But this, one of the duties of then Clark Gable, military man. So came that early April morning at an air base in Colorado. Forty flying fortresses line the apron. Four thousand men march out for a final inspection. They've trained long and hard for these ships. The 400 men who fly them and the 3,600 who work to keep them flying. Now the 351st Bombardment Group is ready. By the dawn's early light, it assembles for overseas combat. You're on your way, Joe. This is it. With his staff, Colonel William A. Hatchett, Jr. looks over his four squadrons. You feel the old man is proud of you. He finds no fault with you today, nor you with him. You'd fly his wing to hell and gone. Sergeant Philip J. Halls, top turret gunner from Springfield, Missouri. He feels that way. So does his pal Kenny, Sergeant Kenneth L. Halls, ball turret gunner from Perkins, Oklahoma. Related? No. They think they might have been several generations ago back in Germany, but now, just two guys with the same uncle, Sam. Meet their pilot, Lieutenant Theodore Argeropoulos of Redding, California. Arge's brother is in the Air Corps, too. Their dad was born in Greece. Yes, the Greeks have a word for it. Fight. Their bombardier, Lieutenant Daniel F. Stevens of Chicago. He can bat a thousand with a Norton bomb sight. Sergeant Paul J. Posty, ball turret gunner. His dad came from Italy. Paul was formerly a pastry cook. He's got one brother in the Navy, another, a Marine, missing in action. Here's Sergeant Tim Touchett, tail gunner from Mariana Lake, New Mexico. On the reservation, they named him Aki. That means boy in Navajo. Uncle Sam's boy, too. A few last-minute instructions, and we're off. The compass points northeast. Take another look down there. That's your part of the Earth. Out of that desert, those mountains, those fields has grown the American way of life. What you're fighting for. You remember the Colonel's quiet words? Men, the enemy has asked for it. Let him have it. Seek no quarter, nor give any beyond reason. Be firm, 
be just. And Godspeed you all. Eight and a half hours out of Newfoundland, another sunrise. It's rising out of the red of battle, this sun. But 40 more B-17s, three minutes apart, have roared across the Atlantic night. The Irish coast looks up to say, top of the morning. And a lake in the Ulster Highlands gives the navigator a checkpoint. Off the Scottish coast, Dernia Craig is a signal for right rudder south, across the English Midlands. Pilots are impatient with lack of sleep. Head up, boy. Pour on the coal. Let's get there. nothing today, just our hats in the ring. Hello, Missy. We've brought something for you and brother. Chewing gum and chocolate bars. And there's a crate of oranges in the ball turret. Ah, there, Grandpa. We'll be seeing you for a glass of that. And there's the base. 400 acres of dispersal areas. The RAF is on hand to welcome us. Set her down, Colonel. Set her down. The 351st becomes part of the 8th Air Force. We've reached the battlefront. The combat crews move into English barracks. They give them those simple, quiet names for which Americans are famous. the ground crews arrive. Hi, Gus. Great boat trip, huh? Only seven days and without any escort, too, hmm? See any submarines? Oh, a hundred of them, huh? Well, I guess you ought to know, Gus. They tell me you was hanging over the rail all the way. Next day, big doings. Class A uniform. Shine those buttons. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Gloucester. Brother to the King of England drops in and is greeted by the old man. What's that? Sergeant Major says the RAF is handing over the field to us.
Yep. If we can fit your boots, we'll walk it straight, brother. Another surprise visitor, General Arnold himself doing a world inspection flight. He tells you you've got a tough assignment. This is one head man who knows and doesn't kid you. We have the privilege to meet General Laker, commanding General, 8th Air Force. All right, Laker, sir. Yeah, glad to see you. How are you coming to this camera training film of yours? Well, it's a little early to tell you, sir, but uh, we're turning a camera on everything and everybody. Well, I know what General Arnold had in mind in having you make this gunnery picture. Captain Gable, our gunners are already the best in the business. But if they were only 10% better, it'd cost the Germans another 100 fighters a month. So fire away, gunners. Plenty more practice before that first mission. That from a Clark Gable film. We're just midway through the program. Coming up, we will hear about Elvis and Marlena Dietrich. She, no, was not an American citizen, at least born in America, but she did so much for the USO around the world. Stay with us as this special Hollywood veteran edition of the American Veteran Show continues, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. So glad you're with us as it's summertime. Maybe you're back going to movies. Maybe pop some popcorn and listen to the second half of the American Veteran Show as we focus on those Hollywood stars, global stars, really, who contributed to the war efforts and served this great country of ours. We've already talked about Jimmy Stewart. We've already talked about Clark Gable. Coming up in this segment, Marlena Dietrich. And, of course, if you have maybe little knowledge about her life, truly incredible. So we'll have that. And then we wrap it up with, of course, the late, great Elvis Presley, the Elvis film right now doing so well at the box office. Many of you maybe remember when Elvis joined the Army. First, though, we go old school with someone who wasn't even born in the United States. Each one of you has your favorite pinup girl, but all of you want the girl with the most famous pins in Hollywood, and here she is, your mistress of ceremonies, Marlena Dietrich. Go see what the boys in the back room will have And tell them I'm having the same Go see what the boys in the back room will have And give them the poison they name And when I die, don't spend my money On flowers in my picture in a frame Just see what the boys in the back room will have And tell them my side and tell them I cried And tell them I died of the same Or giving this the GI treatment I know what the boys in the army would have And brother, we're in on that game I know what the boys in the navy would have And mister, that's more of the same They ask for girls don't think it's funny Remember Shakespeare said what with a dame Just see what the boys in the service will have And tell every man from factory word That we've tried to get him the
fellows. This is Marlena Dietrich seeing what you boys in the back room will have and seeing that you get it. Before the international floor show begins, I'm sending love to the Gunners and the Wolfhounds at 2-5, to Private Andy Vavrek and the Mob at 5-5-6. Greetings to Pete Alexander in that India workshop over in Quetta, India, and to Johnny Ellis at PT Base PO 318. Hello there, Corporal Bob Wisconsin, and the nest of scorpions at 4-8-5, listening on a captured German radio. And for 10,000 O'Briens and O'Toole's and O'Reilly's and Notre Dame's fighting Irish over in Sicily. Well, fellows, a flattering number of you have written to me in care of command performance asking for three songs. I've sung these three numbers at so many army camps that by now the music looks like the end of a three-day pass. One of these is see what the boys in the back room will have, and I got safely by that early in the show. The other two are falling in love, which I can't sing tonight because the notes are so worn the band can't see them. And this one, dedicated to that girl who has your picture on her vanity, the girl who each night says to that picture, you've got that look. You've got that look, that look, that leaves me weak. You with your eyes across the table technique You've got that look, that look between the lines You with your let's get more than friendly designs I should be brave and say let's have no more of it But oh, what's the use when you know I love it. You only kill my will before I speak. So turn on that low left hook, that look that leaves me weak. All I do is dine with them and split a pint of wine with them, respectable as can be. Yet here's what they say to me You've got that look, that look That leaves me weak You with your eyes across the table technique You've got that look, that look Between the lines You with your let's get more than friendly design. I should be brave and say, let's have no more of it. But oh, what's the use when you know I love you? Only kill my will before I speak. So turn on that low left hook, that look that leaves me weak. Men, the cop of the night beat will be coming along in a second, and if he finds our lights on, he'll have to make an investigation. So we'll ring down the curtain on another command performance for all of you men and women who will be ringing down the curtain on the axis. This is Marlene Dietrich saying, thanks for those letters, affectionately yours, 
And right again soon. And so long from the USA. <laughs> This is Ken Carpenter with that closing remark to the effect that command performance is arranged in cooperation with the Hollywood Victory Committee and is produced for you men of the armed forces of the United Nations by the Special Service Division of the War Department of the United States of America. Love those old radio programs honoring Marlena Dietrich. And as we wrap up this segment, how about Elvis Presley? What you're about to hear is Elvis returns. Elvis is kind of officially done, but he still has a couple of years to go. Listen in. Well, Elvis, now you're really home. How does it feel? It's pretty hard to describe, I'll tell you. It's hard to get used to, you know. I mean, I've been looking forward to it for two years, and all of a sudden, here it is. It's, uh, It's not easy to adjust to it. Now that you are back, as you look back on your two years in the service, what was the... Uh, most important thing that happened to you during your two years, whether it was overseas or here in the States? Well, there were a number of things that happened. Uh, I had quite a few interesting experiences. Slip out in the snow. <laughs> HC rations, you know, all the regular thing. But uh, I suppose the, the biggest thing of all is the fact that I, I did make it. I made it just like everybody, I mean, I tried to play it straight, you know, like everybody else. And uh, I made a lot of friends that I never would have made otherwise. And uh, all in all, it's been a pretty good experience, you know. Elvis, uh, you still have time to serve now for Uncle Sam. Have you given any thought as to where you're going to serve your reserve training? Well, sir, uh... I will be on the reserve status here in Memphis at the reserve center here. But uh, they have a a clause which covers people with traveling jobs. Uh, If you have a traveling job or if you live too far away from your reserve center, they put you on uh, standby. Uh, Whereas uh, you don't have to make their meetings, but you are uh, subject to be called in any emergency or... Well, it's Elvis Presley and G.I. Blues. Hopefully, you're having fun with us as we salute those big names that served this country. As we wrap up in our final segment, we go a little more modern. His name, Adam Driver. United States Marine will have that coming up. Elvis, take us to the break on the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. And if I don't go stateside soon, I'm going to blow my fuel. We'll get a horse and feather and black pump a nickel for chow. Horse and feather, horse and feather. We get a horse and feather and black pump a nickel for You're chow. You're with me. Yeah. Occupation 
This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome back to our summer popcorn movie type American Veteran Show, our final segment. Thought we'd go much more modern. Hope you have enjoyed this look at film stars, the famous that have served in our great military and had such an impact, not only domestically, but overseas. This, what you're about to hear, is from a TED Talk just several years ago. His name is Kylo Ren. No, his name is Adam Driver, and most of the world first learned of him, even though he's so talented. And what a life up to that point when he was back in a new Star Wars film as Kylo Ren. Adam Driver from a TED Talk as we wrap up the American Veteran Show. I was a Marine with 1-1 Weapons Company, 81's platoon out in Camp Pendleton, California. Rock. <laughs> I joined a few months after September 11th, feeling like I think most people in the country did at the time, filled with a sense of patriotism and retribution and the desire to do something. That coupled with the fact I wasn't doing anything. I was uh, 17, just graduated from high school that past summer, living in the back room of my parents' house, paying rent in the small town I was raised in northern Indiana called Mishawaka. I could spell that later for people who are interested. Mishawaka is many good things, but cultural hub of the world, it is not. So my only exposure to theater and film was limited to the plays I did in high school and and blockbuster video. May she rest in peace. Uh, (laughs) I was serious enough about acting that I auditioned for Juilliard when I was a senior in high school. Didn't get in, determined college wasn't for me, and applied nowhere else, which is a genius move. I also did that... uh, Hail Mary L.A. acting odyssey that I always heard stories about of actors moving to L.A. with like $7 and finding work and successful careers. I got as far as Amarillo, Texas before my car broke down. I spent all my money repairing it. Finally made it to Santa Monica, not even L.A. Stayed for 48 hours wandering the beach, basically. Got in my car, drove home, thus ending my acting career. So, (laughs) 17, Mishawaka, parents' house, paying rent, selling vacuums, uh, telemarketing, cutting grass at the local 4-H fairgrounds. This was my world going into September 2001. So after the 11th and feeling an overwhelming sense of duty and just being pissed off in general at myself, my parents, the government, you know, not having confidence, not having a respectable job, my shitty mini fridge that I just drove to California and back, I joined the Marine Corps and I loved it. I love being a Marine. It's one of the things I'm most proud of having done in my life. Firing weapons was cool. Driving and detonating expensive things was great. But I found I loved the Marine Corps the most for the thing I was looking for the least when I joined, which was the people, these weird dudes, a a motley crew of characters from a cross-section of the United States that on the surface I had nothing in common with. And over time, all the political and personal bravado that led me to the military dissolved, and for me, the Marine Corps became synonymous with my friends. Then a few years into my service and months away from deploying to Iraq, I dislocated my sternum in a mountain biking accident and had to be medically separated. And for those who were never in the military, they find this hard to understand. But then being told I wasn't going to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan was very devastating for me. It's a very clear image of leaving the base hospital on a stretcher and my entire platoon was waiting outside to see if I was okay. And then suddenly I was a civilian again. I knew I wanted to give acting another shot because, again, this is me, I thought all civilian problems are small compared to the military. I mean, what can you really bitch about now? You know, it, it's hot. Someone should dirt on the air conditioner. You know, this coffee line is too long. I, I was a Marine. I knew how to survive. I would go to New York and become an actor, and if things didn't work out, I'd, I'd live in Central Park and dumpster dive behind Panera Bread. 
So I, I re-auditioned for Juilliard, and this time I was lucky enough I got in. But I was surprised by how complex the transition was from military to civilian. And I was relatively healthy. I can't imagine going through that process on top of a mental or physical injury. But regardless, it was difficult. In part because I was in acting school, I couldn't justify going to voice and speech class, throwing imaginary balls of energy at the back of the room, doing acting exercises where I gave birth to myself while <laughs> my friends were serving without me overseas. Um, but also because I didn't know how to apply the things I learned in the military to a civilian context. I mean that both practically and emotionally. Pr practically, I had to get a job. And I was an infantry ma marine where you're shooting machine guns and firing mortars. There's not a lot of places you can put those skills in the civilian world. And emotionally in that, I struggled to find meaning. In the military, everything has meaning. Everything you do is either steeped in tradition or has a practical purpose. You can't smoke in the field because you don't want to give away your position. You don't touch your face because you have to maintain a personal level of health and hygiene. You face this way when colors plays out of respect to those people who went before you. You walk this way because of this. You talk this way because of this. Your uniform is worn and maintained to the inch. And how diligently you followed those rules spoke volumes about the kind of Marine you were. Your rank said something about your history and the respect you had earned. In the civilian world, there's no rank. Here you're just another body. I felt like I constantly had to prove my worth all over again. And the respect civilians were giving me while I was in uniform didn't exist while I was out of it. There didn't seem to be a, um, a sense of community. Whereas in the military, I felt this sense of community. How often in the civilian world are you put in a life-or-death situation when you, with your closest friends and they constantly demonstrate that they're not going to abandon you? And meanwhile, at acting school, <laughs> uh, I was really, for the first time, discovering playwrights and characters and plays that had nothing to do with the military, but were somehow describing my military experience in a way that before to me was indescribable. And I felt myself becoming less aggressive as I was able to put words to feelings for the first time and realizing what a valuable tool that was. And when I was reflecting on my time in the military, I wasn't first thinking on the stereotypical drills and discipline and pain of it, but rather these small, intimate, human moments, these moments of great feeling. Friends going AWOL because they missed their families, friends getting divorced, grieving together, celebrating together, all within the backdrop of the military. And I saw my friends battling these circumstances, and I watched the anxiety it produced in them and me not being able to express our feelings about it. And, and the military and theater communities are actually very similar. You have a group of people trying to accomplish a mission greater than themselves. It's not about you. You have a role. You have to know your role within that team. Every team has a leader or director. Sometimes they're smart, sometimes they're not. You're forced to be intimate with, with complete strangers in a short amount of time, the, the self-discipline, the self-maintenance. Uh, I thought, how great would it be to create a space that combined these two seemingly dissimilar communities, that brought entertainment to a group of people that, considering their occupation, could handle something a bit more thought-provoking than the typical mandatory fun events that I remember being voluntold to go to in the military. <laughs> All well-intended, but slightly offensive events, like win a date with a San Diego Chargers cheerleader, where you answer questions about pop culture. And if you get it right, you win a date, which is a chaperone walk around the parade deck with this, you know, already married, pregnant cheerleader. And <laughs> nothing against cheerleaders. I love cheerleaders. The, the point is more, how great would it be to have theater presented through characters that were accessible without being condescending? So we started this nonprofit called Arts in the Armed Forces, where, where we tried to do that tried to join these two seemingly dissimilar communities. We, we pick a play or select monologues from contemporary American plays that are diverse in age and race, like a military audience is. 
grab a group of incredible theater-trained actors, arm them with incredible material, keep production value as minimal as possible, no sets, no costumes, no lights, just reading it, to throw all the emphasis on the language and to show that theater can be created at any setting. It's a powerful thing, getting in a room with complete strangers and reminding us ourselves of our humanity and that self-expression is just as valuable a tool as a rifle on your shoulder. And for an organization like the military that prides itself on having acronyms for acronyms can get lost in the sauce when it comes to explaining a collective experience. And I can think of no better community to arm with a new means of self-expression than those protecting our country. So we've gone all over the United States and the world from Walter Reed in Bethesda, Maryland to Camp Pendleton to Camp Arifjan in Kuwait to USAG Bavaria, on and off Broadway theaters in New York. And for the performing artists we bring, you know, it's a window into a culture that they otherwise would not have had exposure to. And for the military, it's the exact same. And in doing this for the past six years, I'm always reminded that acting is many things. It's a craft, it's a political act, it's a business, it's um, whatever adjective, I guess, is most applicable to you, but it's also a service. I didn't get to finish mine. So whenever I get to be of service to this ultimate service industry, the military, for me, again, there's not many things better than that. Uh, thank you. Isn't that awesome? Who knew? Kylo Ren becomes known as that character from a TED Talk. The actor Adam Driver, born in San Diego, a Navy town, November 19th, 1983, but Semper Fi Marine. Hopefully you have enjoyed this look at Hollywood and our veterans. And thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to catch us Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 p.m. on our regular program on 710 KNUS. For producer Michael Arpaio, I'm Stephen Tubbs. Have a great week ahead. Stay safe and remember our troops. for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season test your skills on prize picks the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports just select two or more players pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats and place your entry it's as easy as that if you have the skills you can turn ten dollars into 250 dollars with just a few taps Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com/get100. For a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.